listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents, a show where we talk about the blue part of our planet, the ocean. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts and adventurers, ocean archaeologists, and more, all trying to uncover and learn about the mysterious and vital part of our planet. I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California waters, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is a hot spot for ocean life above and below the surface. So today we are going to get a local update to find out what the ocean is doing this year. So far, this time of year brings a transition of some sorts. It's called the spring transition as we leave the winter conditions in the ocean and move into this upwelling period here on the California coast. Upwelling brings this cold water and the nutrients that help nourish and create this dynamic food web from plankton to fish and krill and whales and seabirds and and many, many more things. So we are really excited today. We're going to talk with Russ Bradley, the Farallon Program Manager for PRBO Conservation Science. He's out at the Farallon Islands and is calling in to give us a live report. Year-round, the PRBO Conservation Science team keep biologists on southeast Farallon Island, 25 miles away from San Francisco. And so this long-term data record is really keeping a great pulse on the biological activity offshore. So let's bring on Russ. And Russ, you are live on the air. Hi, Jenny. Greetings from the Farallon. Thank you so much for joining us. I was kind of expecting to hear a little bit more wind, but I guess you're kind of tucked into a safe place. Yeah, I'm actually inside the house uh, speaking to you on the, uh, on the phone right now with our new communication system. But if I were outside on a cell phone, you would definitely hear the wind and hear the goals starting to get a a little bit louder. Uh, So there's definitely a lot of activity going on. That's exciting. Thank you so much for joining us. Each season on the islands has a different emphasis, and you have crews that rotate in and out, and you've recently uh, switched to the spring crew. What is the main effort for the biologists during this time of year? Well, at this time of year, our focus is primarily the breeding seabirds out here on the Farallons. And the Farallon Islands are the largest breeding seabird colony in the contiguous United States. We have over 300,000 seabirds of 13 species that breed out here in the summertime. So that's our, that's our primary focus at this time of year. And so have birds started uh, setting up eggs and nests, and what's the timing of all that? seems like it's been an early year. Yeah, it, it, it definitely has for some species. So we've seen, um, starting in March, late March, a pretty large pulse of early breeding from Cassin's auklets, which are these small uh, uh, diving seabirds that are usually found pretty far offshore. They're sort of little non uh, nondescript and gray to see them, but they're pretty amazing birds in that they um, 
the the wing propelled divers they use their wings to fly around basically fly underwater force themselves around underwater and they eat krill they eat zooplankton mostly these big um phosids and uh, they tend to be a great indicator for us of what's going on with local krill populations they eat the same thing that blue whales do and that humpbacks do um uh, when they're when when they're up in this region and and we've seen very very strong early breeding by auklets they they only come to the island at night and they breed in burrows and in nesting boxes that we have out for them but there's a very high occupancy already almost all uh, our, a lot of our study sites are occupied at, at really high rates you know among the, the highest that we've seen in recent years and it really appears that these birds are responding to um, to strong krill. It really looks like with the spring transition this year we've had, uh, we've, we've, we've got really good krill out there because the aquas are really responding, and especially in early April we had uh, a, lot of, a lot of whale response as well. That's exciting. It really surprised me to hear of humpback and blue whale sightings before May, and usually it's like June, July. So what, when were you seeing them and, and where were you seeing them? Isn't that extraordinary? You know, every time I, I come out here, and I've been coming here for, I've been working on the Fairlands for over 10 years. I've spent over 1,400 nights on the island. <laughs> and, uh, and you think that you've seen it all, and then something comes along to remind you that, um, the, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of changes going on. So basically in April, they started to see some humpback whales and blue whales. And I actually have our Fairlawn Journal in my hand right now. And I am going to the cetacean section, and we'll look at, so for whales, we've, we've got our, our regular resident gray whales that are still uh, hanging, hanging around uh, the island that, uh, that do pretty much every summer. We have a few, you know, one to three that will actually stay here and not do the whole migration up to the Bering Sea and feed um, in the substrate in addition to some uh, migrating gray whales. But in addition to that, like you said, we had uh, blue whales, blue whale sightings, um, at the end of March, we had a, there was blue whale seen on March 29th, which I have to check our records, but that's probably one of the earliest that's ever been seen. There was a single blue whale, and one to two blue whales were seen until the 7th of April, so early April, blue whales. And then humpbacks were seen throughout early April from the 6th to the 17th, and the high there were uh, on the 8th of April, there were 35 humpbacks seen. Wow, that is so, yeah, so that is cool. Pretty, Pretty extraordinary, and probably another indicator that um, krill uh, was really abundant very early here for the for the whales to come out um, uh, come out this close to the island. And heard from fishermen that they're more along the coast, a little bit further south. But it was pretty surprising for folks at the island. I wasn't out here at that time, but um, everyone here uh, on the crew was was pretty pretty amazed pretty amazed to see that that level of humpback and blue activity that early in the season. Now, typically it's a patchy type of thing in terms of where the food is, the whales move around. Have they stuck around this entire time or have they disappeared for a little bit? They pretty much, the, the humpbacks and blues are pretty much disappeared. There were two humpback whales seen yesterday, but um, basically from about mid-April, those humpbacks and blues pretty much disappeared and have uh, have have moved away from the island. So um, 
they've the, they're they're obviously responding to to some change in the distribution of food. That's exciting. Now with the Cassin's Auklets, it's pretty exciting to have this early uh, setting up shop. Is there a potential forecast for maybe doing double clutches this year? This is when the food's so good oh, sure. they'll they'll have two. Sure. So that we sets? can we can explain. I'll, I'll explain a little bit about that. One of the really neat things about these birds and and these birds are. They're pretty. Just to give you a sense of what they what they look like and what it's like having them on the island, they they are these little uh, small little birds that are sort of little flying, uh, little sort of miniature flying footballs that come in at night, come into their holes in the ground, and they sing. They have this really unique sound when they're singing for their mates. It's been described by some people as crickets on steroids. <laughs> uh, is the is, is the best definition I've heard. So these birds are all in singing and digging. And what they can do is, like you said, this population is very unique. This species ranges all the way up down to Mexico and up to Alaska. And in the southern part of their range, when conditions are really good because our, our season of ocean productivity is much longer, we can have birds lay in March and then um, what we call double brood or, or double clutch where they, after they successfully rear a first young lay another egg and have another chick. And, you know, in the last few years we've seen a lot of this too, and we've had chicks into October. And so this is, is pretty extraordinary. And that's something that you see relatively commonly in songbirds and landbirds, but in seabirds it's extremely rare. Mm. And we think a really good indicator of the length and strength of a, of a productive ocean, especially as the as krill goes uh, from from a, from a krill perspective. So if it's anything like the past few years, we suspect to see very high rates of double brooding again and aquas continuing to breed into the early fall. It's really exciting to hear such positive news from the ocean. We hear so much bad news most of the time. I just did a climate change workshop on Saturday for teachers and was very sobering. So it's just wonderful to hear that the ocean is resilient and doing good things this year. Definitely, there's um, you know there's always challenges, and we've, with our over 40 years of data, seen some climate change impacts out here on the Farallones as well. And some species uh, seem to have, are, are you know seem to respond very positively at certain times, and then for other species, are they're definitely being affected more in a negative way. But as far as krill and Cassin's auklets are concerned, right now they're uh, they're doing very well. So this must be also tied with the abundant salmon reports that we're hearing about. Are you seeing a lot of salmon boats out there? Yeah, the uh, we've seen a few, but not too many. I think most of the salmon is along the coast um, right now. But you know, salmon salmon eat very similar things to a lot of seabirds eat with like Cassin's auklet with krill and other species. Um, you know, seabirds with schooling fish. So some ways you can think of seabirds as salmon. Or, or um, yeah, seabirds is salmon with wings, <laughs> and that actually information that we can learn from seabirds can be used to help us um, help us understand what's going on with other species like salmon. And we did a study at PRBO uh, several years ago where we were actually able to look at basically use the breeding success information from the previous year, previous breeding year of Cassin's auklet, and incorporate that into the models that are used to predict salmon return into the Sacramento River and uh, actually improve the fisheries models and their predictive ability. And basically the sort of bottom line is is that we can learn from all aspects of the ocean. And by bringing these different sources of information together, 
that can help us to better understand these uh, animals and resources that we that we care about and that we rely on. It's exciting study with bringing ecology together like that, showing the predators and prey and how they're so interconnected. Well, moving on a little bit here. So, well, actually, not too much. My question about this, the ocean conditions, I'm not so sure I fully understand. But this past year, were we in a a moderate La Nina period in the ocean? And and do you think that ocean conditions are tied at all with that? I'm curious if you could talk to that at all. I think I'm trying to remember because I'm not totally sure, but I think we may have been in a mild La Nina. But from my experience in the Fairlands over the last 10 years, something that's really that's really come out strong is that we appear to be seeing responses that are falling out of the conventional understanding of an El Nino or La Nina conditions. That uh, you know, certain certain species are responding in ways that are um, that are very different than what we've seen before, and even mismatch with, uh, you know, between krill and fish-eating species. That's something that um, to highlight in this period of recent years, when brand, when uh, excuse me, Cassin's auklets, these birds that we've been talking about, uh, have had such high breeding success. Some of the fish-eating birds, in particular, uh, say Brant's cormorants, which is a, a species which has their largest, the world's largest population breeds on the Farallon Islands. Uh, have done very, very poorly in their reproductive success. They've had very poor breeding years. Um, Western Gulf, too, have had very poor years. So there almost seems to be this disconnect where you would think conventionally before, okay, well, if there's a lot of krill, then that means there's got to be a lot of forage fish in the ocean as well. And for certain species and the, and the, the prey that they rely on, that doesn't seem to be the case. So that we're starting to see some some of these sort of mismatches between different layers of the food web, which are very new and interesting to study as a scientist, but also concerning because there are things that we really haven't seen before. That's interesting. How do you figure out what they are eating? Um, do you do like, a, I mean, how do you figure out what they're eating if, if their predicted forage fish are not around? Sure. Um, so we part of our studies with seabirds involves definitely looking at the diet, what the birds are eating. It's something that we think... Uh, can help us to basically use the birds as indicators of changes that are going on with fish. So we do that for many different species. For the Cassin's auklet, we actually collect a few samples every week of um, krill from birds that come in to the island to feed chicks. We get a sample of krill from them that we can that we can send off and identify the krill species. The uh, the species like common murres uh, and pigeon guillemots, we actually observe the fish being brought in to feed chicks and can identify them that way. Um, and we can actually get uh, you know, fish from other species too, like rhinoceros auklet, even, even able to get some samples of fish in the hand that we can measure and compare with what's going on with fishery sampling for those forage fish. And for Brant's cormorants, we actually will get pellets, regurgitations uh, of hard parts of fish that, uh, that aren't eaten by the birds and their chicks. At the end of the season, we round them up and we take them back to our lab at PRBO and we have a incredible staff, uh, uh, lab staff and uh, volunteers and interns there who will meticulously go through them and remove the bones, the, what are called the otoliths, the, the ear bones of fish, and be able to identify the individual fish species inside these, these pellets that the cormorant bringing in. 
That's fascinating. I know you're doing that with an education program too, right? Some of the schools and I believe San yeah. Francisco are, yeah. are having an opportunity to dissect them, right? Yeah, yeah. That's part of some of the education programs we have going on. That's great. Or, um, yeah, yeah. Kid, kids can get to look at uh, look inside a cormorant pellet and uh, be able to see how how scientists and researchers conduct their work to figure out what these birds are eating and help engage them in this incredible marine environment um, that's right outside the doorstep and part of the city of San Francisco. For all those people who live in San Francisco, I think we, we often forget, and everyone in the Bay Area forgets that, the Farallon Islands are legally part of the city and county of San Francisco. And uh, so it's, uh, they're, they're a truly spectacular resource. That's wonderful. For those tuning in, I'm talking with Russ Bradley, who is the Farallon Program Manager for PRBO Conservation Science. He's calling in live from the Farallon Islands. We're talking about what's going on offshore there right now. So the Cassin's Auklets have set up. How about the MERS and other birds? Is it just becoming a wild cacophony of seabird sounds right now? It is. It is. The MERS are starting to um, lay their eggs now. We've been busy up in the study blinds every morning, uh, following through our, our, our plots, um, figuring out which birds have laid, and we're observing birds. A lot of them in some of the plots are banded uh, individuals that we follow throughout their entire lives. Some of these seabirds can live 30, 40 years, uh, and we, we are, we're starting to see those myrrh eggs being laid, the brilliant green eggs um, that uh, the, the adults are sitting on and incubating. So, yes, there's, there's, the, there's definitely, definitely a lot of activity going on. Other species are starting to lay, and uh, the Cassin's Auklets had an early start, but it seems like the other species are really starting to begin their breeding cycle, and even the branch cormorants are starting to build nests now. So pretty soon things will, uh, things will definitely be reaching their peak, and so the islands will be a very loud and smelly place. It's such a great time of year to get on a boat and get out there. I, I have, haven't been in out for a few years, but oh, it's just such an amazing thing to see all those birds and think everybody flying around, and it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand you recently had a very rare seabird sighting um, just another week or so ago. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. That was pretty spectacular. Um, and that was, yeah, a few weeks ago, biologists uh, from the island sighted a bird, a large white bird flying around and took a closer look at it. And the bird looked like the shape of, uh, you know, birds that uh, we see more in the tropical Pacific that are called boobies that have this um, unique shape. These are the birds that plunge dive into the water and uh, they're in the Pacific, they're mostly a tropical species, and they look closer and realize that this species was actually uh, the northern gannet, which is a, a bird which is like in the in the northern hemisphere, uh, booby, or this, these booby species are called gannets, and northern gannets are a purely Atlantic species. They breed and um, are distributed throughout the Atlantic Ocean, and one has never been seen this far south in the Pacific. Now, I've heard through various uh, email listservs among seabird biologists that there, ha- there were sightings of a gannet, single gannet in the Bering Sea last year uh, in northern Alaska. Um, so this may indeed be the same bird, and we possibly could be looking at a bird that has flown through the Northwest Passage uh, with some of the retreating ice up there. Uh, and that's not, you know, there's still maybe a chance that this bird rode on a ship and came through the Panama Canal. But basically, this species has never been seen in California before and has never been seen in the lower 48 states 
or lower 48 Pacific states before. So it's a truly unique sighting. There have been a lot of sort of first California records for birds seen on the Fairlawns, but this was uh, this was totally and completely unique. And we saw the bird again last week, actually flying around a bunch of different areas of the island, and everyone was able to see it clearly. Wow. So it's a it's a truly truly unique bird sighting. So what do they are fish eaters as well? So I imagine, do you think they're eating while they're here? Well, it's here. Yeah, one would hope that the uh, that the bird would still be able to forage. So boobies and gannets have a unique. Uh, feeding strategy. Uh, some of these um, uh, nature films like Blue Planet have really highlighted this where uh, you, the, the birds will actually plunge the, themselves into the water. They pull their wings completely back on, the water, uh, on their body and go right into the water like a spear to be able to catch fish. So obviously this bird has been able to forage successfully um, and we hope that it stays around and, and we continue to see it. We haven't seen it uh, for a few days now, but we suspect it may still be around. That is really cool. Have you heard of any other sightings outside of the Farallon area? I know a lot of people keep up on uh, listservs and whatnot of interesting birds that are showing up. Have not heard of any other sightings of this um, of this bird, but I know that other people have been out looking for it. From uh, <laughs> Point Reyes, Stalkup told me that uh, he went out to Point Reyes as soon as he heard about it and was already searching for it out there. But I don't think anyone's seen it on the mainland. Yeah, the Point Reyes Lighthouse is one of the closest points of land, you can really feel like you're on the ocean for those of you that just really need to get your ocean fix. It's so awesome to get out there, especially on a foggy day, even though you can't see that far, but you just feel the ocean there. One other thing I want to ask you about. So I understand there is um, a restoration effort perhaps underway. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service may be leading up at removing house mice on the island. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and how did those mice get there and um, where is the planning process for this so far? Certainly. So uh, sometime in the mid-1800s, uh, during the fur sealing operations out here and myrrh egging and all of that, um, house mice were introduced to the Farallon Islands and have been here ever since then. And uh, basically, from work that's been recently done uh, with our partners in this project, uh, Island Conservation, uh, we've determined that the densities of house mice, when their population cycle peaks, in the fall are among the highest ever recorded in the world uh, for wild populations of house mice outside of agricultural settings. So they arrive very early and their numbers are very numerous and they've got a lot of, uh, they've got a lot of impact um, to species out here, both direct and indirect. And we are involved with our partners with, the, like I said, Island Conservation and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, I always remind people that the Farallones are a national wildlife refuge, and so we are very fortunate to be able to work out here uh, with our partners at the Fish and Wildlife Service. And basically, we're involved now uh, in the preparation of an environmental impact statement and the planning process for this proposed uh, eradication of house mice, and this has been a very detailed and intricate process. I'm we're all pretty sure now it's the most involved planning process for ruin eradication in probably in the history of the world. And so we're doing a lot of effort to try to make sure that this planning document and process is as comprehensive as possible. And that's going to be coming out to the, um, to the public. Some uh, the, the dates are still to be determined, but uh, later on this year, and so we're, we're, we're definitely very involved in this process, and we're assessing 
uh, all aspects of um, potential alternatives and potential impacts, both positive and negative. And this planning process is designed to evaluate those and come up with the best uh, selection of alternatives going forward. So it's a very exciting and challenging project that uh, is, um, is, is, is something that we're spending a lot of time on now. That's exciting. Well, thanks for that update on that. I had heard little tidbits about it, but I hadn't heard too much of where things were going. And as a, a, a person who actually got to visit the islands uh, over 10 years ago, I remember how impactful the mice were just on the human biologists that lived in the house. Pretty uh, yep. in-depth. They're very, they're very, when they're at their peak, they're very, very, very numerous. Um, so we just have a couple more minutes left, and uh, I wanted to hear a little bit about some of the observations you've noticed. You've been out there about 10 years, and, you know, one thing I've been really curious about this year is it seems like the springtime winds are getting stronger and are, stick are here for longer periods of time, where I, in my memory, it seems like we'd get wind and then it would calm down a little bit more. But from now, it seems like it's windy, 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 and it doesn't let up. And I'm just curious from your time on the islands and maybe some of the data that's been collected through the Farallon Journal, have you noticed any difference in that? Well, I think that the spring transition and overall uh, has has definitely gotten earlier, and we're seeing, like you said, the associated strong wind speeds with that. I don't know specifics in terms of analyzing our data on that, but just from my experience, even the experience of the week and a half uh, or week and a bit that I've been out here, yeah, there seems to be this, you know, really really strong winds with less of these relaxation events, um, and that's just anecdotally. But there's a uh, Definitely, very, very strong, strong sp spring winds last few years, and some, uh, you know, it's, it can really blow out here sometimes when the wind picks up throughout the day and into the evening. And uh, I remember, I remember the last few years of last couple springs of, you know, we'd have these nights where it's, you know, 45, 50, 50 knots of wind by the night, and you're literally sleeping in your bed, and the whole house, <laughs> you can feel it move. Uh, these houses are incredible. They're built in the 1870s. They have amazing foundations and redwood beams. But the literal the, the power of that wind is is palpable, and you can you can literally feel it while you're lying in your bed. Wow. Well, thanks. That'll be interesting to see. I know that uh, the upwelling is is predicted to change with climate change, and I'm going to be kind of following this a little bit. And I'm just really curious. I know that in Santa Barbara they had record wind, wind speeds last year and more small craft advisories than average. And um, it seems to be a trend on the California coast. And I'm wondering how closely associated with climate change it could be. It's kind of interesting oh, to definitely. follow. Oh, and the, and the upwelling obviously drives a lot of or you know, the, the core components of the biological productivity of the system. And any changes to that is, is going to have potential changes to, uh, to sort of further down, further down the food web. In terms of how these how how water is mixed and how nutrients are provided to plankton and how that works its way up the food chain. That's interesting. But there's there's definitely potential for for changes and impacts. Well, for now, it's it's really good news that we've got krill and the birds are happy and the whales are around. And I really appreciate you sharing this update with us today. Is there uh, still a website, a blog that's being kept by folks on the islands in terms of sure. what's going on out there? Absolutely. You can always go and figure out, find out more information on the Farallons from our PRBO website. That's www.prbo.org. 
and we uh, we also have a blog uh, that that we keep about uh, events that are happening on the island. You can get to that through the PRBO website, or um, the uh, the address is uh, lostferrolones.blogspot.com. And so we can you can you can see uh, what's happening on the island there. And if you want to see physically what's happening on the island at any given time, you can go uh, and look at their uh, web camera. We have a collaborative project with California Academy of Sciences, and uh, we have a, a web camera out on the island, and, and you can see what uh, what we see out on the island uh, right now. And you can find that through PRBO or or Cal Academy's uh, website if you want a, a firsthand look at what's happening on the Fairlawns. And actually right now when we started talking, it was all still foggy and we couldn't see anything. But during the time that we talked, fog has lifted completely. I'm looking over on West End Island and at uh, clear blue skies and uh, gulls building nests and uh, all is good on the Fairlawns. That's great, Russ. Thank you again. I really appreciate your time and and, uh, enjoy your time out on that special place. Oh, I always do. I always... uh, know how fortunate we all are to be able to work out here and it's a it's a truly unique privilege great to be part of something that's much bigger than any of us individually so i still love it wonderful thanks again russ appreciate it thank you jenny all right we've been talking with russ bradley the farallon program manager for prbo conservation science and just got a nice update of how things are doing out there it's really exciting to hear we've got a good year so far in terms of krill, that really important food for so many birds and mammals and and fishes as well. And um, I'm sure my next guest on the next half will be excited to hear about maybe good conditions set up for jellies, which will attract his favorite species, those leatherback turtles. But we're going to take a short break here and come back. I'm going to play a song about the Farallon Islands written by a good friend of mine, Buttercup Bill. Out from the coastal hills, the big old granite rocks. Sitting out in the great big blue, just 25 miles away. Between the land and the islands, you know the water doesn't get that deep. The wind blows and the white caps break, it's here where the dolphins leave. They're just 25 miles away They're just 25 miles away Oh, how life sure changes 25 miles away I hazard for all the ships at sea The hookah was split in half 100 passengers All but 23 found dry land They're just 25 miles away They're just 25 miles away Oh, our life sure changes 25 miles away Russians had their eyes on pelts They nearly killed all the northern fur seal The food web almost lost its grip The Yorka couldn't find no meal They're just 25 miles away They're just 25 miles away Oh, our life sure changes 25 miles away 
1863, the egg wars reached a peak. Taking Murrigs back to the city, a dollar a dozen in the streets. They're just 25 miles away. They're just 25 miles away. Oh, how life sure changes 25 miles away. little slow song to bring us into the second half of Ocean Currents. You're listening to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock. And in the studio with me, I have Chris Pinsetich from the Sea Turtle Restoration Project. And Chris, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. There's an exciting event coming up May 11th that I thought we could talk about. Um, I just recently learned about it, and I, I shared it with a friend of mine today, and she's like, I didn't know about this either, and she signed right up. So maybe we'll get more people to sign up. If you still have room. Absolutely, we do still have room, and we're hoping that all folks in West Marin and across Marin County will get the news now and spread it far and wide about this Friday at the Romberg-Tiburon Center for Environmental Studies out in Tiburon to attend our Blue Mind event. And Blue Mind was originally conceived by a friend, uh, a member of our board of directors at the Turtle Island Restoration Network, and a world-renowned sea turtle scientist and innovator in ocean conservation, Dr. Wallace J. Nichols. And several years ago, he really started tapping into how the functions of our brain, the structure, the way it connects us to our actions is really critical in understanding. If we understand how our brain works and how it drives so many of our actions that we don't think about, even though we technically are thinking about them, you know, we have a better chance of connecting people to the things that really need to get done. And when I say that, I mean ocean conservation. You know, we at the Sea Turtle Restoration Project have been working on this for over 20 years. Myself, I've been working there um, at the Turtle Island Restoration Network, the parent organization for that and Spawn and Shark Stewards and Got Mercury. I've been working at Turtle Island for four years now. And you know, this is really going to be a great event that you can come learn about all of our projects that we do as an organization and learn from some of the top minds in the Bay Area studying ocean conservation, marine biology, and neuroscience. I know this neuroscience thing is really interesting. I had Jay on our show here October 2009, and he was just starting to touch upon his thoughts about this whole effort. And I'm so curious to hear how it's going because it's really the ultimate thing that I think all of the conservation world wants to know is how do we get people to care? And some of them already probably do and they just don't know it. And so finding out the intricacies of that is pretty interesting. So is he going to be talking or is he having special other people present about that? Is that psychology or brain neuroscience or how does, what is it exactly? Yes, all of that is <laughs> happening. As a matter of fact, we have a more inclusive daytime program and that's 10 to 4 and Jay's going to be giving a talk on his sea turtle projects and also running a panel on Blue Mind at 3.30. We'll have kind of an intermission break. Everyone um, reconvenes at 6 for the premiere reception for the Blue Mind evening. And really the evening program is going to be amazing. That's where we're going to give Jay the podium to really explain all that he's found, to really unlock some of these secrets to the connections we have to the ocean and how we can take action to save the ocean in meaningful ways. And then brings together a big panel of his expert Blue Mind people um, from award-winning 
teachers in San Francisco that are instructing students in new and creative ways to neuroscientists from Stanford that are hooking people up to MRI scans while asking them about how they value nature, about how their decision process works when, for example, asked to donate to help save the planet. Um, and then also we're having Jody Lomask, who leads the Capacitor Performance Group, and they just finished up their first run of Okeanos, which is an interpretive dance on the oceans. It was an amazing performance. I got to see that in April. She'll be there talking at length about that, that experience and more. So really diverse group of speakers, really diverse group um, of neuroscientists, educators, artists in the panel and attending. We've got a fantastic list of people that have already registered and uh, hope we can get more. We do still have room. It's at seaturtles.org slash blue mind. If you want to type that in, if you go to our website, seaturtles.org, you'll see Jay Nichols holding a sea turtle during his research as a big photo right in the middle. And you just click on that photo. It'll take you to the page to learn all about blue mind. Excellent. So just to, to recap, earlier in the day, 10 to 4 is a symposium where scientists that are doing research and leading conservation projects can um, present and the public can hear and listen to this. So this is a bunch of sessions. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have a kind of an overview of all the different projects that Sea Turtles read is leading up? Are there some other ones, too? Oh, we've got two presenters from San Francisco State. San Francisco State, Romberg Tiburon Center. That's where we'll be. And those researchers are doing some amazing work. We've got Dr. Catherine Boyer, who's going to be talking to us. Her title of her talk is Essential Eelgrass Restoring Valued Habitat, because as most people know, the San Francisco Bay can serve as a massive filter, an estuary to clean the water before it goes to the ocean. And eelgrass is essential for that. And then we're also having Dr. Jonathan Stern, who's say, talking on the reoccupation of harbor porpoises in San Francisco Bay. And I've already seen some of his photos. They are unlike anything I'd ever seen, some really um, intimate behavior with those harbor porpoises. I've heard about them. <laughs> yes. So we have David Helvarg, author and leader of the Blue Frontier campaign. He'll be talking about his books on saving the sea. Myself, my talk is Pacific Leatherbacks, Giants in Jeopardy Plagued by Plastic. We've got the Center for Biological Diversity's Catherine Kilduff talking about saving bluefin tuna from extinction. David McGuire, who's now with Turtle Island Restoration Network leading shark stewards, will bring us up to speed on the current research of sharks in the San Francisco Bay and our nationwide efforts to ban shark fins. We were successful in California, and we're spreading that around the nation. The final talk is Jay, Dr. Wallace Jay Nichols, on his Blue Marble Projects, his sea turtle research, and just learning to live and love the ocean. Excellent. So Blue Mind Conference this Friday, May 11th at Romberg Tiburon. Go to seaturtles.org for the full schedule and registration information. And uh, hopefully we'll have a nice, robust turnout. It sounds like a great overview. And not very often do all these people come together just to share this incredible information. So I hope you get a really good, diverse turnout. What else is happening with sea turtles? I was reading about the leatherback sea turtle as potentially becoming an official state symbol for California. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, you're referring to our current campaign, 
to support Assembly Bill 1776 going through the California legislature right now. And that bill would, like you said, name the leatherback sea turtle as the official marine reptile, a symbol of, of the state's biodiversity and conservation ethic. It would also name October 15th as Leatherback Sea Turtle Conservation Day. And it really comes on the heels of an amazing accomplishment for our organization and our team to have the largest protected area for sea turtles in U.S. conservation history established off of California and off of the West Coast. And that's the critical habitat designation for the Pacific leatherback sea turtles. So we've had this bill idea to, to give the sea turtle recognition in the state of California for over a year. We didn't get a sponsor. This year, with the designation of the critical habitat, there's a whole list of federal scientists who have signed off on this document that California's oceans are critical to the leatherback life history, critical to their survival. Therefore, essential habitat and designated now critical habitat for the endangered species. So with that document in place, it really validated the effort. And I, th I think it has a lot to do with the timing, that we've got this support and we're moving it forward. Um, it cleared the first hurdle. It's headed towards a few Senate committees in June, and we could use your support. If you go to seaturtles.org, look for the leatherback bill, the AB 1776. We'll bring it up on a quick search. And there's ways to take action. We're looking for leatherback leaders to lead efforts in classrooms. We've got hundreds of letters out of some events we did in Pacifica over Earth Day. Great letters from kids. You know, they're not voters, but they are the future. They care a lot. My sister and my niece were at that event, and they had a great time. Fantastic. We're also just gaining more and more support letters. What's most important are these coastal businesses that need healthy oceans. We've got whale watching tours and, and different charters already writing into Sacramento saying healthy oceans are essential to our business. And raising awareness, whether it's a leatherback or a gray whale tangled in ropes, you know, reminds people of what's out there and our need to be aware and make sure that we do take care and save the oceans and, and through all of our actions every day. Fantastic. I think it's an awesome way to bring some attention to this poor species that's really suffering, but hopefully some of this good attention will be good for them. Well, Chris, I have, well, actually, we have a couple more minutes. What else is going on? I know you said you have, may have some World Oceans Day celebrations going on. Absolutely. You know, Blue Mind is kicking off a fantastic season, engaging with the public, sharing our conservation work. And it's going to be the highlight, the crown jewel of a couple months of stuff. But World Ocean Day is June 8th, and it's coming right up. And if you check our website at seaturtles.org, if you slash type events, you'll get straight to our events page. Uh, David McGuire has set up a World Ocean Day uh, party with a film at the amazing fish restaurant in Sausalito. We'll be going to Cal Academy Thursday nights, both Thursday, June 7th, near World Ocean Day, and June 14th, which is right next to World Sea Turtle Day. So that'll be a sea turtle-themed nightlife. If you've never been to Cal Academy Nightlife, it is quite a scene. You have access to almost the whole museum, the, all the exhibits. It's adults only, and they serve cocktails. So it's quite a, it's quite a <laughs> night. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thanks again for coming in to Ocean Currents, another local ocean organization. It's nice to keep the pulse on what's going on. Oh, you're very welcome. I love talking about the ocean. I'm going to take us to a quick break here because, Chris, I have a special song for you with your, your sea turtle passion. We've got a great song from the Banana Slug String Band. Pl take a quick break with that. Turtle 
made of jelly and he didn't feel well. He had a pain in the belly because the jelly wasn't what he thought it would be. It was a plastic bag. A what? A plastic bag? Yeah, it was a plastic bag. Dude, I'm really bummed. Too many plastic bags now in the sea. Up today. This is Ocean Currents. I'm Jennifer Stock. Thanks for joining us today. We had Russ Bradley from the Farallon Islands calling in earlier. Got a great update from the islands of what's happening out there. And just heard a little bit of an overview of Blue Mind with Chris Pincetich of the Sea Turtle Restoration Project. Blue Mind Conference is this Friday, and it sounds like a fantastic overview of a lot of great ocean conservation work going on during the day involving some of the stuff that we don't talk about all that much, and that is our, our brains and how they work. And it's really cool, cutting-edge stuff. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. But you can go to seaturtles.org to listen to or to find out more about that. Just want to remind everybody, yes, there is a super low tide tomorrow. We've had this incredible super moon, and it's brought some wonderful low tides to access an area that we don't get to see very often, that intertidal area. When the tide's out, we get to see this wonderful environment. And along the coast, there's some great tide pool areas, and it's supposed to be a negative 1.8 tomorrow. So that's pretty exciting to see a tide that is that low. But I just want to remind folks to please be careful when walking in the intertidal area. Those are creatures that are hanging onto the rocks and trying to survive. So please walk very carefully. And of course, be keep an eye on the ocean at all times and make sure you're communicating with folks about where you're heading out to. I'm going to be safe out there on the coast and also on the water if you're heading out on a boat. Um, I want to share one little story here with you that popped up into the news, and it's kind of a nice one. Um, unfortunately, we do have a problem with, with whales getting tangled and um, old fishing gear up and down the coast from time to time. And earlier this year in April, just about a month ago, there was a, a gray whale spotted off the coast of Southern California in Orange County that had some gear on it. And the NOAA officials, they have a disentanglement network of people that are trained to handle and try to remove this gear, couldn't relocate the whale. It was somewhat lost or gone. Well, it just showed up again here locally, right off right outside Bodega Bay. This animal started migrating north, and a fisherman saw the whale and was wondering what all this stuff was moving along the surface and got a closer look and realized this whale had a bunch of gear on it. And he took a very brave step and decided to try to remove it, and he did successfully. But you do want to know that there is something called the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And uh, he is very lucky that NOAA um, recognized his good faith effort, and he was exempted from any charges. But it's a really good idea to call the, the local authorities for uh, helping trained people get out there because these animals are huge and be, can be quite dangerous. Um, and you can call locally here the Marine Mammal Center. I think it's 1-800-SEAL. Sorry, I don't have that number right off the top of my head, but you can call the Marine Mammal Center and they activate the network right away if you happen to see any mammals entangled in gear. But Lucky was able to ref uh, get this whale free and, and also get exempted from any charges, so lucky for him as well. But so nice to know that people care and they want to help these animals that are just have this mis misfortune. So really excited to hear that whale is on its way without any gear on its tail. 
good news. So good years so far in the ocean. We've got good krill, good, good ocean conditions, salmon. Enjoy your locally caught salmon. And we will be back next month on Ocean Currents with another show. This show is the first Monday of every month, part of the West Marin Matters series. And you can tune in every Monday to hear a topic of some local or global relevance regarding the environment. And you can hear all the past episodes of Ocean Currents on um, my website at cordellbank.noaa.gov. That's C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. I've got five years of shows, so you have a lot of catching up to do if you haven't tuned in. And you can also look for it in iTunes. Love to hear from you. If you have any inf- information you want to share or topics you'd like to hear about, feedback, I'd love to hear from listeners. Uh, my email is jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. Thanks again for tuning in to Ocean Currents, and I'm going to pass it off in just a few minutes. Uh, we have the West Marine Report coming before cruising with guest host Loretta Farley. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.